listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Hello, and welcome to Pharmacists United for Truth and Transparency, the PuttCast. Putt is a not-for-profit industry watchdog organization dedicated to exposing the truth about the shady, abusive practices of pharmacy benefit managers and how they affect American patients, healthcare providers, and taxpayers. On the PuttCast, we'll talk to pharmacy industry experts, influencers, and patients, always with the goal of bringing the truth, transparency, and solutions to America's prescription drug affordability crisis. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. This is Monique Whitney. I am the Executive Director for Pharmacists United for Truth and Transparency, or PUT. I'm here today with my co-host, PUT Vice President Lauren Young, and today we're talking about 2024. But before we get started, I want to thank our sponsor, DataScan Pharmacy Software. We love them because, like PUT, they are an independent fighting for independent pharmacies. So, Lauren, Welcome back. I'm so glad that you are here with me for this month's episode. Yeah, I'm excited for kicking off 2024. Yeah, I am too. 2023 was a very interesting year. And now we've got another 12 months ahead of us. And the opportunity is going to be to see what we and our distinguished panel have to say about what we can look forward to in 2024. So with that, I will happily introduce them. I'd like to start with Greg Reibold, our very good friend from American Pharmacies Cooperative, Inc. Greg, how are you today? Hey, doing really well, and thanks for having me, Monique. Well, you're welcome, and we're really glad to have you and looking forward to all of your amazing wisdom gleaned over the last few months and all the work that you've been doing. And then we have Steve Moore, one of our most favorite people. Steve is independent pharmacy owner. He owns Condo Pharmacy in Plattsburgh, New York. Steve, welcome. Uh, thank you, Monique. You're very kind. Uh, thrilled to be here today with uh, you, Lauren and Greg. <laughs> well, we're glad to have you. And also, I should just say, like, we are super excited that you are on the NCPA board. That's that oh. is really wonderful. Thank you, thank you. A great organization. Happy to uh, to work with so many great pharmacists throughout the country, and hopefully, we can make a difference with some of these PBM problems we're going to be talking about. Yeah, yeah. Well, NCPA has done really great work. Everybody on this panel has done really great work, and I, I think it's going to be a good year. I think there's a lot to be optimistic about, and, and I genuinely mean that. I and mean, sometimes we have to sort of gin ourselves up to be in a good mood, you know, at the beginning of the year, but I am genuinely optimistic. I think that we're seeing some good progress. So, Lauren, why don't we just, you know, start with you? Um, I thought it would be great if what we did was just take a moment to reground ourselves in 2023. So I wrote that for anyone who read the December putt newsletter, I wrote a lengthy year in review of the many things that happened. And by the time it was done, I felt like I had whiplash after fighting it. It was like that busy of a year. Did any favorite moments stand out to you? I thought it was really interesting to see collaborative groups. I know Deb has really had a big wave of support with her Mindy's group in Minnesota. And this was kind of like the first six months trial of that in 2023. Yeah, I would agree with that. I'm going to be interested to see what starts happening in Minnesota, especially there. Arizona, I think we've been on a slow and steady path to try to build, sometimes it feels brick by brick, but build this better environment for the business of pharmacy. And and we've had some some good successes, uh, but there's a long way to go still. So Steve, what about you? When you look at like 2023, what were some of your favorite moments? Oh, wow. (laughs) So (laughs) uh, 2023 was an interesting year, primarily here in New York. We were very lucky um, to finally, finally move back to a fee-for-service benefit in our New York Medicaid program, the NYRX. So that was the culmination of a lot of years of hard work. Putt, Monique, you know, you assisted us in that effort from, I don't know, must have been your first day on the job, I think. We really appreciate all the, the support of Putt, Greg, you know, Lauren, you know, Lauren, you flew to, to one of our protests, God, back before COVID, how many years ago now? Uh, you know, Greg, you were always there to, to help us with, with legislation and to help with wording and stuff. So Putt definitely played a, a big role in, in helping Pisney, you know, the Pharmacy Society here in New York, you know, and helping us get that, get that ball across the finish line. And uh, we are incredibly excited about what that means, not only for our patients here in New York who now have access to all of uh, New York's community pharmacies. We have about 5,000 community pharmacies here in New York. 
Uh, more than half of them are independently owned community pharmacies. And so the fact that the NYRX program allows for patient choice means those, those patients can go to the pharmacy that's most convenient for them. Uh, single formulary. And um, last, uh, certainly not least, is the idea that we have a, a fair payment model. You know, we have an ADAC-based reimbursement model. We can talk about the dispensing fee and whether or not we feel it needs to be updated. But it is uh, significantly better than what we were seeing under the, the managed care model. So when that went to infect uh, April 1st, I think that that was a real big deal and, uh, you know, definitely carried us through the, the year. Some scope of practice changes in New York, you know, we, we still lag behind some of our colleagues in the rest of the country with what our pharmacists can do from a scope standpoint. So we're excited to be catching up a little bit, but, uh, you know, we need to pay the bills to do that. And that the fee-for-service thing allowed us to, to do that, you know, with the challenges we're seeing right now with the Medicare D space early in 2024. And, uh, you know, we kind of expect those to continue through at least the first trimester of the year, thanks to our friends at CVS, having that that Medicaid program, you know, stabilized for pharmacies, a big, big deal. I wouldn't call where you are now an overnight success, but I would definitely, whenever whenever I look at what it took together, like that's a fascinating case study all on its own, because I do, I remember the very early days, starting with the CVS squeeze and buy. Remember yep. that those days, right? Right around the time they were buying Aetna, and and now here we are, and you're in a place that I I don't think anybody thought we'd ever get to. So that's that's great. Long way to go still, but still excellent progress. Yeah, so we're excited. It, it looks like this year the state is projecting uh, in the second year the savings, uh, not quite half a billion dollars in, in savings. So that that's money that's being reinvested into the Medicaid program, back to providers uh, like pharmacists, um, back to hospitals, back to you know frontline care providers. So, you know, rather than going to line the pockets of our friends at CVS and Optum and uh, Express Scripts, that's providing care here in New York. So we're really excited about that. Great. Yeah, our good friends. Craig, what about you? Favorite moments? I know you were uh, you were living at large there in 2023 between uh, all the work you were doing for APCI and then all the work that you were doing up in D.C. Yeah. So I have, you know, it was it was an exciting year, I think, in a lot of ways. I would say, you know, at the state level, absolutely New York getting that implemented, moving back into fee-for-service was just huge. That's an issue that's kind of at the forefront for me. And I think it's a testament, you know, to playing the long game, working hard, not getting discouraged, not taking the ball and go home. I mean, it was like you think back to like Odysseus and the Odyssey, right? Like, I mean, it was it was a long road to implementation and they stayed the course. And what's better than, hey, pharmacists are getting paid fairly. You have transparency in drug pricing and patients have choice in the pharmacy they use. And oh my God, you know, half, half a billion in savings, right? It's, it's a win, win, win. And New York is a big state. And I always say a rising tide lifts all ships, right? And so this will be good for other states, for patients and pharmacies in other states when they're advocating for transparency, fair reimbursement, and patient choice. So so that was really, really exciting. Florida had a really big year, right? And, and Florida's an important yeah. state. And they passed some big legislation that, that got a lot of attention. And so at the state levels, I definitely think those two things were really good. At the federal level, wow, right? Like PBM regulation is cool. Steve, you know, Lauren, Y'all remember this, right? In the old days, you go up to DC, people didn't know what a PBM was, right? Like you're spending your day explaining what a PBM is. And now there, and I don't have it counted, but you know, I, I, I track all the federal bills and there's well over 50 PBM slash drug pricing bills out there this year, which is great, right? So there's a lot of attention. It's a hot button issue. PBM regulation at the federal level is cool. There's nuances to that, and there's things to be concerned about, but that's a really, really good thing. And then to get a little nerdy on you, pharmacists have been the canaries in the coal mine forever, right? Like they've been the one advocating for their patients for years and years and years, advocating you know, against PBM abuses for years and years and years. But a lot of what pharmacists have behind the counter is, is myopic, right? It's you know specific examples, and sometimes it's anecdotal. And something I've been thrilled to see this year then it's been building, but there have been some massive studies that have come out in 2023. Uh, we work with 3Axis on a study that's getting a, a lot of attention. It was cited in Bloomberg, I think, just this week. And one that hasn't gotten as much attention that we weren't involved in, but love, is the MedPAC study that came out, I think, in June of 2023. And it just, to me, in so many ways, reinforced what pharmacists have been saying for years. And when you get the data, 
data can drive policy and it reinforces the things that pharmacists have been saying and it reinforces the things that pharmacists have been advocating for. So I know that's a little nerdy, but just thrilled to see the studies coming out that just show the games that PBMs are playing, their role in increasing prices and stifling choice. And I think that it points, you know, it, it'll help point the direction to good policy solutions. If I could just jump in there too, Monique, um, I, I think it's incredibly exciting to see that pharmacy is getting better at telling its story. Greg talked about data and everything. And, you know, we had a whole lot of anecdotes 5, 10, 15 years ago, you know, and now you've got pharmacy together at a point where we can coherently tell a story based upon facts and, and data that's available in the public domain if we can't work with somebody who, you know, to, to get it to us privately. And I, I think it just lends so much more credence to argument. I mean, we know we've been on the right side of this, but to be able to, to show up, whether it's at a state capitol or, you know, Washington, D.C. at the federal capitol with actual numbers. You know, and, and to be able to, to share those numbers with legislators just makes such an incredible difference when we're telling this story. And it's, it's very compelling. Kudos to, to Greg and Putt, the way that you bring people together, you know, and we learn from each other in different states, you know, through the different conferences and, you know, all the national organizations. But, but Putt's been a big player in this, too, you know, to, to come together with our colleagues and, and figure out how to do this. You know, what happened in Ohio, they started all this and we all benefited from their work. You know, and we learned from California, we learned from West Virginia, we learned from Kentucky and, and Florida and everybody. So bringing us together, big kudos to, to Puck for, for being a part of that and for helping us to tell this story in a way that resonates with policymakers. I think that's exactly right, Steve. I think that you kind of hit the nail on the head. Putt really does a great job of helping pharmacists take a step in front of the counter and make sure their patients' stories are heard. To the legislators, because the legislators, I think, are understanding that pharmacists are the main touch point in a lot of these communities for patients. And patients come into our pharmacy for a variety of things that have nothing to do with medication. They ask us about mail that they're getting from not only their insurance company, but other things. You know, the pharmacist is just a trusted person that they can talk to. And so legislators realizing this and understanding the power that pharmacists and the pharmacy staff has as a trusted individual, I think is no longer lost on our legislative officials. That's really important. Yeah. And thank you for saying all of that. And and it's really been something to see the the evolution of pharmacy because early on it really was what's a pharmacy benefit manager. And, and now it's gratifying to see our congressmen, our, our congressmen and women, our senators speaking with such knowledge about rebates and spread pricing and all of the things that, I mean, I, I remember having whole days where I was like, how am I going to explain this to anybody? And now here they are and, and they're, they're talking like pros. And and they seem genuinely interested in fixing the problem because at the end of the day, you can't have strong patient health outcomes without your pharmacy. And I spent a lot of time talking about how patient access and open pharmacies are the same coin. There's just two different sides and you can't have one without the other. And I'm, I'm, I'm gratified that it's going that way. And here we are, right? We're at the beginning of 2024, and there's so much activity going on. Predictably, of course, uh, the opposition has been actively campaigning to try to tell a different story, right? And, and so as I was studying up a little bit in preparation for our conversation today, one of the things that I was studying up on is this, this term that they've glommed onto, this delinking, right? So for anyone who's listening, the, the concept of delinking, delinking has shown up in uh, some of the bills, but it basically talks about unhitching PBM revenue streams that are related to prescription drug pricing. So no spread pricing, no, no rebate revenue coming in that way. The idea is that you have PBMs and they should be paid for the value of the services that they provide. And the services that they provide are benefit design, but also claims management. They shouldn't be in these other parts of the supply chain taking percentages, you know, because those are perverse incentives. So we're seeing that now. And one of the things that I was fascinated by, and I'm curious what your guys' take on this is, 
is this whole idea that by delinking PBM revenue to prescription drugs, somehow, some way, we're all now giving big pharma a bailout. Have any of you seen the campaign ads on that? Yeah, yeah, for sure. They're, that, that's definitely something that they're pushing. And obviously, they're pushing just generally really, really hard against delinking. And they're trying to lay it at the feet of the pharma companies, for sure. So I'm a Giants fan, which is tough to admit this time of year. <laughs> and, you know, when I when I hear about the PBMs talking about pharma and vice versa, in my mind, it's like watching a Philadelphia Eagles in a Dallas Cowboys game. Like, it just doesn't work either way for me. <laughs> but, um, you know, I think that um, I think that they've just had unfettered access to kind of pillage our healthcare system for so long that, of course, they're going to throw up any roadblock that they can. You know, if MasterCard and Visa added costs to the system, the way that these groups do is as transaction processors, and they, they should be paid for that service. It's a valuable service. You know, we would need that tomorrow if all these companies that, that we have problems with, you know, went away. Somebody would need to process those claims. And, and so that's a valuable service. It needs to be done correctly and appropriately. And then they can be compensated for that. But I think we need to align the incentives throughout the, the supply chain, you know, and, and we start to look at, you know, what's going on with, with formulary issues, with restricted access and, and network restrictions to, to certain providers. Clearly, incentives aren't aligned and they're not serving the best interests of the patient. Yeah, I would agree. And, and not to get too technical, right? But what PBMs are best at is exploiting drug prices. And they exploit them in, in you know, in different areas of the supply chain in different ways but the the end of the game is they profit and it drives prices up right and the you know historically in ohio was kind of the first to blow this up you hear hey you've got sort of this traditional spread pricing they're reimbursing pharmacies low for a drug and then they're charging the state a much higher price for that drug and they're profiting via that spread and so then states have gone and they and they try to stop that and what they find is, okay, so even if you, you put in a law that says, hey, you can't have that spread, what they do is the reimbursement for the drug matches what they charge at the point of sale, but then six to 12 months later, what happens? You know, they take some money back from the pharmacy, and all of a sudden they've had that same spread, but it's on the back end. And those are games they play on the pharmacy side. They play massive games on the buy side with drug manufacturers and demanding massive rebates or else they exclude those drugs from formularies. And then they take those rebate dollars and find different ways for them to keep a lot of large portions of that, right? Those, those rebate dollars are not lowering costs for patients at the counter. And they say, hey, and you gotta watch what they say because they'll say things like, hey, we, we pass 90 something percent back to the client. Well, half the time, the client is an insurer that either owns the PBM or that the PBM owns themselves, right? And then they they play these fantastic games where if you get a hold of an employer contract, it'll say, hey, employer's entitled to the rebates. But then you go to a few pages down and all of a sudden it excludes from rebates, rebate dollars that they get for specialty drugs. And then a few pages from there, it may say volume discounts paid to affiliated pharmacies are excluded from the definition of rebates. So there are billions of dollars that are being diverted in different ways. And the concept of delinking is PBMs aren't going to profit off of the price of a drug. They're not going to do that, right? They have to get a flat admin fee and and that's the way they're going to get paid and they will no longer be incentivized to manipulate drug prices. That's the theory. And it's a really good theory. And it's, I think, a really good policy, but the language has to be right. The language has to be right or else there's all sorts of ways that they'll be able to continue to exploit and continue to play games. And then on top of that, we still have to ensure that there are specific protections for community pharmacists, because a lot of the delinking is great policy in many ways, but that, that doesn't mean that pharmacists are gonna be paid fairly. It doesn't mean that, there's, you know, that they're not gonna lose patients through certain steering practices, et cetera. So the detail is gonna be really, really key to that. Greg, something you said I thought was really, really, really important. And it triggered that thought back to this so-called $32 billion big pharma bailout. Johnson & Johnson, or I guess Janssen, division of Johnson & Johnson, every year publishes its transparency report. And between the 2022 report and the 2023 report, one of the things that was remarkable was the amount in PBM rebates, how much it increased. So in 2022, it was $8 billion dollars, right? Going just to PBMs and commercial plans, not including everything else. 
and in 2023, it was $11 billion, right? So when we talk about this $32 billion bailout that they want everyone to think it is, you know, I'm struck by that because I don't think we're really talking about a bailout. I, I think it's as big of a bailout as like you getting bailed out when you go to the grocery store and you find out that milk is, you know, on sale. So instead of paying $4 a gallon, you're paying $1.50 a gallon, right? So you've gotten like, what, a $2.50 bailout, if you will. <laughs> You know, and if I'm wrong about that, definitely please correct me. But I, I, I'll be fascinated to see if they can actually pull this off. And at the same time, bailout is a very politically charged word. And one of the things I think as we look to 2024 that we might want to have our eye on is what's the language that's being used and how can we, on the side of, of right as we are, how can we help to diffuse that or or even change it altogether, you know, tra transform that language, if you will. You touch on something that I think is really important. It's important for the delinking conversation. It's important for pharmacy policy at the federal level and, and maybe more important or as important at the state level. But what they're calling a bailout, the way they're couching it, from my perspective, is absolutely not intellectually honest, right? Because it doesn't say that they can't negotiate discounts. It says that they can't profit off of drug price manipulation. So they can they can negotiate discounts all they want. The discounts would go to the patient and the discounts would go to the client. So, so let's be clear. When the CBO looks at this and they have started to look at this, what you see is not that the sky is falling and premiums are gonna go through the roof and it's gonna cost billions of dollars, which is their number one go-to defense for any proposed PBM regulation. Whatever a state tries to do, whatever the feds try to do, the large PBM, PBMs will come in and they'll say, the sky is falling, and oh my God, premiums are going to go through the roof, drug prices are going to skyrocket. And what we find is in states that have regulated PBMs, guess what? Sky didn't fall. And oftentimes costs went down. And premiums didn't go through the roof. And you know, Steve touched on this with New York, right? Steve, and, and please weigh in here. I bet they were throwing out all sorts of crazy numbers in connection with the, quote, cost to the state if there's a carve out. But you just indicated earlier that they're looking at half a billion in savings. Yeah, absolutely. And one of these days that the sky is falling argument from the PCMA group and, and you know, they're, they're ill, it's going to be met with the attention it deserves. You know, you talk about anything regarding reform and they're like, well, drug prices are going to go up. And it's like, you guys are making billions of dollars daily, quarterly. You know, we we put reform in a place, you know, they're concerned about protecting their profit stream, you know, and to be fair, that's a corporation. That's what their job is to to some degree. So it's up to our legislators and up to our advocates. And, you know, those, you know, Greg and, you know, put play a role in educating our, our pharmacists on what stuff really means. So so kudos to you for doing that and for for helping to to see through the argument. I think they can only cry wolf for so long. And I, I do believe it, it's it's starting to fall on deaf ears, at least from from those legislators that I talked to. Agreed. What I would say is, particularly post-Rutledge v. PCMA, where the PBMs have found success is scaring employers, right? And scaring clients who may not be that sophisticated on the day-to-day. -day. And one of their go-to moves is to go run to employer groups or sort of puppet you know, business groups and manipulate them, try to scare them into thinking that any kind of regulation of PBM bad practices will result in larger costs. And frankly, they found some success in that regard in different states, whether it's stopping legislation or kind of taking some of the teeth out of legislation. And so that that has to be an area in 2024 that pharmacy effectively combats. And to Steve's point, a lot of the legislators who've been following this and listening to these proclamations of doom for years and years and years and seeing that it never comes to fruition, they're there. Right. There's a lot of folks who realize that that that's not worth the paper it's printed on, but they have found success ginning up fear, you know, in some of the I would say the employer sectors. And I think that's an area that, that you know, pharmacy has to concentrate on and make a point to combat. Yeah, and Greg, you're 100 percent correct. We, we saw that with our, our PBM regulation bill here in New York. Um, our Department of Financial Services was supposed to promulgate the first round of regulations to go into effect. Uh, January 1st of this year. And we saw that delayed because of some pushback primarily by commercial market and, and private payers. And, and those were the groups that the PBMs went to. And they said, your costs are going to go up. And that's a tough group to work with because we don't necessarily have access to the claims data to say, hey, this is this is what's going on. And it's also tough because you're probably dealing with an HR department who 
might have to admit that they were not made a mistake, but they were maybe yeah. misled by a broker, hypothetically speaking. I, I hear that that happens occasionally. Or, you know, they they just went with the wrong group and, you know, they were misled and they, they did not choose the most efficient plan option or plan design. And so it, it's hard to get somebody to say, maybe I made a mistake or you were misled. It's certainly not their fault. You know, you have some very sophisticated people on the other side protecting profit streams and and they take advantage of the fact that they're the, the perceived expert in that space. And so, you know, we, we do need help, uh, you know, to, to reach out to the commercial space. And as an employer, you know, we certainly need help dealing with the PBMs because it's such a, it's a one-sided thing right now. Agreed. And, you know, one of the, from my perspective, one of the first groups, I think, to really hone in on, on the issue of trying to find ways to engage with the employer group is PUT. Uh, and, and Monique, I'm sure you can speak to it a little better than me, but that's something that you all have, I think, long identified and made efforts in. And I think those are really, really important efforts. And, and Yeah, you know. I'm glad actually you guys brought that up because, you know, when I first started in 2016, what we were trying to do was twofold. We were trying to get attention on the problem of pharmacy benefit managers, which really wasn't successful until the EpiPen scandal hit. We were also trying to talk to employers and help them understand what it was they were buying. And so it's been a lot of years now. And I feel like for the first time, we are in a good position now to start talking about it again, because there are employers out there who are asking questions. And, you know, the PBM Accountability Project, which many of us on the podcast today are, are familiar with, that's a group that was founded by unions to talk to unions about what is going on for real with their benefits when it comes to pharmacy benefit managers. Are they actually getting the best deal? And so we're starting to see greater and greater interest. And I'm encouraged by that because one of the problems that we come up against time and time again is ERISA. You know, we think we're moving in some direction. You, you want the law to be able to be fair and equitable to everybody. And so you present something like, I don't know, let's just say patient steering. Nobody should be steered to a pharmacy they don't want to go to. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, sorry, Arissa. So self-funded plan, you're just going to have to go with whatever the PBM tells you you have to do. Being able to reach those people who organize those benefits and say, like, these are the pitfalls. These are the things you should be looking for. This is what it means when they say prices are going to go up if we are transparent with you or you know, insert any number of ludicrous responses here. So I, I think it's yeah. going to be good. I'm excited about it. I think, and I'm, I'm glad I'm glad you remembered that. Thank you for, for bringing that up. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we're looking ahead, right? And so I for sure think the opportunities are going to be for all pharmacists to be looking in their communities, um, talking with employers who are there, looking for those, you know, opportunities to be able to really just educate where they can without breaking contract. Some of the other things I'm curious to get your take on for 2024, we've had CMS put a letter out and the letter suggested that PBMs should perhaps stop DIR feeing pharmacies to death. And I know that's been met with varying levels of skepticism all the way up to optimism. And I'm just, you know, as, as you guys look to the next 12 months, what do you think? Do you think CMS, do you think, do you think that's a good sign? Do you think who knows what the PBMs are going to do? I mean, I think I, I put good money down on that. They were like, yeah, sure. Thanks, CMS. We're going to continue on with business as usual. But just what are you guys' thoughts about that? Yeah, I think we would love to see CMS be a little bit more proactive. Um, and I think some of the, the legislation that that's sitting before Congress right now, there's a bill. It is a Senate Bill 3430. talks about reasonable and relevant contract terms in Medicare. And I think if we had had a, a reasonable and relevant clause in some of these contracts, the DIR issue would not have gotten to, to where it is today. Thankfully, you know, for better or worse, it's resolved in the sense that the DIRs are, are no longer being taken back retroactively. We're dealing with them at the point of sale. Uh, with that being said, it's been an interesting almost two weeks uh, for our colleagues. It will probably just continue to remain interesting through the, the first trimester of the year, given the fact that that's when CVS will finally uh, finish their collections for 2023. So I, I think having these at the point of sale allows not only our pharmacists to see them, but allows us to share what's going on in a way that's a little bit easier to understand. It would be great if the PBMs would comply with CMS requirements. 
Um, there's one in particular that has struggled to do so thus far in 2024 in returning the information uh, that they're supposed to be at the point of sale. So mm, I know okay. has called them to task and I hope that they comply as soon as possible. It's not ideal, don't get me wrong. None of us love the fact that money's being taken away, but if they're gonna do it, they need to do it under the terms which CMS sets out. I think if we work with our federal legislators to, to maybe give CMS a little bit more of a, a stick here with some of this legislation, it'll benefit us all going forward. So like I said, Senate Bill uh, S3430, it's a big one for pharmacy. Hopefully be part of one of the, the upcoming spending packages. Yeah, you know, my perspective on that letter was it, it came across largely toothless and, and not surprisingly so. I, I think what we've seen is, and, and listen, this is, a, this is an issue, I think at CMS, but I think also in many, many states and state, you know, health departments, not all necessarily, but you know, look, Part D is a massive program and there's, you know, countless employees at CMS from the lowest levels to the highest levels that are dealing with prescription drug plans every day, all day, and staff members from prescription drug plans and staff members from pharmacy benefit managers. And I, I don't want to go so far as to use the word agency capture, but I think it is shocking how much the perspective of prescription drug plans and PBMs shapes the way agencies look at laws and the way that they implement laws. And I think that it's a massive problem. There, there is something called the non-interference clause, which speaks to non-interfering between contracts, between drug makers, prescription drug plans, and pharmacies. That's been construed very much to the benefit of prescription drug plans and PBMs and used to bat CMS, CMS off many times. And so I think that that's an issue. But I think just the way you look at rulemaking, and, and we'll talk about DIR for a second. Federal law basically says that in Part D, the patient is going to get the benefit of the negotiated price. It sounds really, really unambiguous, right? It sounds really clear. Hey, if prescription drug plans are negotiating discounts, the patient is going to get that discount. Fair enough. But enter CMS somewhere, and I'm going to get the year wrong, 2012, 2014, they promulgate a new definition of negotiated price that excludes discounts that can't be reasonably calculated at the point of sale. CMS themselves, the agency tasked with you know, writing the regs and overseeing the prescription drug plans gave them one of the biggest loopholes, I would argue, in American regulatory history. And what it allowed them to do is deny patients the rebates paid by drug manufacturers, and it allowed them to make really, really complicated contracts with pharmacies so that the patients paying the drug based on the list price, their cost share, their deductible is based on the list price, and then they take that money, the discount from the pharmacy back after the fact. And so that's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with an agency that promulgated that, that reg and that allowed DIR fees to go on until this year on the pharmacy side. And guess what? It still hadn't been fixed on the drug maker side. Something like in 20, I think it was like 50 billion in drug maker rebates that patients did not get the benefit of that were treated as DIR. And so you know, that letter, from my perspective, was par for the course. I guess it's nice that they're sensitive to the impact to community pharmacy, but that letter will do nothing really to protect community pharmacy. And you know, what I would say is on the bills, I agree. I think that's a really interesting bill, that better. But th there's a lot in that bill that relies on CMS to implement. And so I think statutory language and bills are going to have to be as specific as they can. And then the other thing that just historically PBMs and drug plans and insurers do better than pharmacy, I think largely across the country, is engaging with agencies consistently, not just when there's a problem, right? But throughout the year, you know, in, in a very consistent, methodical way in Georgia, you know, I've worked in Georgia for a really long time. And oftentimes, historically, you know, we go to the Department of Community Health when there's a problem, but not day in, day out. And the prescription drug plans, the PBMs, the insurers, you know, they're, they're 50 times a day with different points of contact, you know, contacts in those agencies. So I'll get off the pedestal there, but there's a lot of work to do with CMS in, in my perspective. I'm much more encouraged when I see like the work that the FTC is doing and largely discouraged when I see the work that's being done it's at the CMS level. So my takeaway from that is that the CMS letter is like the code of parlay and Pirates of the Caribbean, right? It's not so much a rule, it's more like a guideline. 
<laughs> yeah, and look, it's you know, it, it, it's a tale of two cities, right? You could look at it, and it's it's, hey, this is a major agency that's taking the time to write a letter to try to help look after the interests of community pharmacy. It shows that community pharmacy's been heard. It shows that community pharmacy did a good job of advocating with the agency. But is it worth the paper that letter is printed on? I would posit no. So I apologize. I don't want to be too negative, but <laughs> no, this is good. It's good. Because, you know, the thing is, like, the easy thing to do would be like, hey, everybody, CMS wrote a letter, Bleh, right? Because that's generally the response. DIRs have to be such a significant portion of the PBM revenue. They have to be. I don't know how you can be the seventh or eighth largest corporation on the entire planet just on the basis of drug rebates and spread pricing. You know, it just, you couldn't be. I mean, these independent pharmacies that are paying upwards of a million dollars in DIR fees every single year, and there's what, 19,000 pharmacies left standing? It, it's got to be, right? So so I'm with you on that. And I think it'll be interesting. I, I, I was optimistic when I saw the letter come out. Part of me kind of wondered how that happened. <laughs> like, how did this letter, you know, find its way? Who put the pressure on to write this letter? And, and what could that possibly mean behind the scenes? But um, no, I don't think you're being too negative at all about that. Lauren, you've been kind of quiet. Any thoughts from you? I typically text Steve or Greg whenever I'm needing some uh, moral support in what's going on since nothing really positive has been happening in Illinois recently on the PBM front. So we were cheering New York on, you know, whenever they were able to get uh, much better reimbursement. And like Greg said, whenever that letter came out, I know there was some uh, other owners who were not as supportive because they saw kind of like what Greg did, that there wasn't a lot of teeth to it. And, you know, they've been telling legislators for a long time that this is really going to impact my store if there's not changes made. Telling PBMs, oh, you probably shouldn't DIR pharmacies we are no longer in a carrot or the stick situation. This is more like fire and brimstone going to be happening to CMS and other pharmacy patients if CMS does not step up and do what they should be doing. And I think that having so many different bills on the federal level really is because there's so many different tricks that pharmacy owners have come to their congressional representatives with and said, okay, this is what we have seen and this is how we are losing patients and this is how patients are unable to get access to better health care. Because really that's what the legislators will ultimately care about. They really don't care if our pharmacy is being under reimbursed. They do not care if a big bad PBM was unable to get us work. They really care if Ms. Stone voter slash constituent is able to get their prescription at the place that they want to get it because otherwise they will call their congressional office every day. So I think having power behind that letter or an agency that actually care, I think when pharmacy owners saw Lena Khan speak at NCPA in Kansas City, they were very much felt supported and felt like finally all of the things that they have been submitting for years for their patients was actually being heard by a government agency, someone that can actually do something that understands that PBMs are not the saving grace that some of the other entities believe they are. So I think that we need to continue that push because it's going to be information that really gets us the win here because there's so many different parts that we have to try to cover in this whack-a-mole game to make sure that the PBMs aren't just hiding and whatever their new fee will be to take it out since they can't do DIR fees anymore. You know, there's already the admin fees that we see and transaction fees and ABCDFG fees that they've put in there. So I think the more that our members can continue to get loud and continue to push that information, and again, it's not really about the reimbursement part. It is about the access to healthcare. That is what will get your voices and your stories heard. 
The rest will come from that. But that's really the mission that we have to make sure we're promoting every day is the continued access to healthcare. I think it's really well said. Yes, agreed. So Lauren, that just takes us perfectly as we've come to the end of the podcast today. Uh, I'd love to get everybody's take on, you know, your view of 2024. So I started off today saying I'm optimistic about 2024. And for the most part, I am optimistic about 2024. I hesitate to issue any predictions, although I, you know, I'm curious what the over-under is on the FTC releasing its 6B study results in 2024. <laughs> but Greg, just sort of looking ahead, what, what's your sense of 2024? What do you think might be ahead? What would you say about the coming year and what we should be ready for? Yeah, so I'm really excited. I, mean, I think particularly at the federal level, there's going to be a lot of action. If you Again, we got over 50 bills here, right? But I'd say there's a couple right now, big player bills that we can look at, right? The House actually you know, passed a really big health package, H.R. 5378, that had some, some good transparency provisions. It had some good NADAC and Medicaid managed care reform, a part of Buddy Carter's earlier package. And so that one now goes over to the Senate, right? And so so that's great. The House has already taken really significant action. I wouldn't be surprised if we see the House look to move another big PBM package as well. And my hope is if they do that, there's going to be some really significant protections in there for community pharmacy. That's my hope. There's a lot of really sophisticated work that's been done by the Senate Finance Committee. And so you've got MEPA, which contemplates delinking and significant uh, reporting. And that bill has evolved and it's gotten stronger and stronger and, and we'll continue to kind of engage and, and the national organizations will continue to engage and on that legislation. But I think we're going to look to see the Senate do something, the provisions in NEPA, which is S-2973. Then you've got BETTER, which also came out of Senate Finance, that starts to really address certain things for community pharmacy in terms of reimbursement and network access. And that's S3430. And so those are two big packages that the Senate's paying a lot of attention to. And then there's also the HELP Committee had the PBM Reform Act, and that's S1339. That lives in the commercial market, and that has a lot of reporting, uh, spread pricing stuff, dealing with rebates being passed back to employers. And I think that that's that bill's going to get some attention as well on the Senate side. So those are the three big bills on the Senate side. And it wouldn't shock me if we have some sort of a package we have to pay really close attention to all of these things. And particularly, I would say, you know, the bill from HELP, uh, S1339, there are concerns because it's in the commercial market regarding potential preemption issues that I think a lot of pharmacy groups have some concern over and, and we'll look to engage in that regard. So again, I think we're going to see some big packages and I think we've got, got some chance to see some, some really significant things. But what I would say for pharmacy is this is, you know, no time to be complacent. And while it's awesome that we have packages and there's getting a lot of attention, what I would say is in these packages, there's very little that's going to make a difference for pharmacists behind the counter and pharmacists bottom line. And so there is massive work to do. And I think pharmacists need to support these, you know, a lot of these bills and need to support broader PBM efforts, but they have to hammer, right? You know, no more. We want to see patients taken care of. We want to see patients paying fair prices at the counter. Lower prices to counter, those are all good things. We don't want to see employers get exploited. We don't want to see taxpayers get exploited. But community pharmacy has been the one sounding you know, the alarm from the beginning. And if y'all can't see, but behind me, there's a VHS cassette that says PBMs 101, right? And I always keep it there. That's how long pharmacists have been fighting this battle. And when you go through these bills, it's super exciting, but there's not a lot that's going to keep pharmacy doors open. And so, you know, we very much want to be advocating for benchmark-based pricing with a fair dispensing fee, fair reimbursement, fair network access, not letting PBMs tie the cost of a drug to performance metrics, you know, things that are going to help pharmacists and help ensure that pharmacists are going to be in those communities to care for the patients that they've been caring for for years and years and years. And if we don't get some relief, you know, then again, PBM reform is great. Delinking is great, but we need protections for community pharmacists. That's brilliant. Thank you. Uh, Steve, what about you? What are your thoughts? Uh, yeah, so agree with, with what Greg said. I'd highlight the 6B study from the FTC as well that was previously mentioned. Um, Lena Khan and her team have done some great work and uh, hopefully we'll, we'll see some results of that. 
here in New York, we're looking to to finalize our, our PBM registration with our DFS. So that'll be big for us. And I think I'd be remiss to leave this podcast without mentioning Matt Osterhaus and um, Iowa. Matt's a, a former pharmacy owner, and Matt is the one who filed the class action lawsuit against CVS regarding DIR fees last fall. That took a lot of guts to do that because, you know, the PBMs have a full license to kind of come after him. Granted, he did sell his pharmacy, so hopefully that protects him a little bit. And they did just file a second lawsuit this past week against Express Scripts. So there's a class action lawsuit against CVS about DIRs. There's a class action lawsuit against Express Scripts, and there may be one coming against the third payer soon. So we'll see. Fingers crossed. But I would encourage every pharmacist to be aware of that. I'm going to put a plug for NCPA and the uh, PBM website they've got with the Trust LLC for arbitration. I know everybody's kind of got mixed feelings about arbitration and signing claims and your rights away to somebody. But if you've got issues with DIRs over the last four years, this is looking back, this arbitration case is going to look back to 2019. So I'd encourage everybody to take a look at their numbers, to work with their payers, their PSAOs, if they've got them, their pharmacy systems, if they can get the reports to kind of determine what the impact uh, on their business was and whether or not it would be worthwhile for them to participate in this particular effort. So NCPA has got the fightpbms.com and you can go and you can read all about it. Obviously, I'm pro pro that, that clause. I've joined myself. But even if you don't join, it's 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 very educational. And I think everybody should be aware of what's going on with these DIR fees. There may be a chance for us to get some of those dollars back. I'm certainly not betting my business on any of those dollars being returned. But what this lawsuit and what this arbitration case hopefully will do is draw attention to the fact that we need protection and that there have been legitimate legal problems caused by PBMs. And it's better to legislate and regulate them now so that we don't have to continue to deal with them for another 10, 15, 20 years. Yeah, amen to that. And thank you for mentioning that. I 100% agree. We have so many people out there who have put themselves and their businesses on the line. And, you know, it, it just enough cannot be said, you know, in terms of just thanking those people. And Matt is certainly one of them. And, and we're excited to see how that goes. Although you're right, it's going to be some time between the actual filing of the lawsuit and when even it, it goes to court. You mentioned real quick, you mentioned Trust LLC and then fight, was it fightpbms.com? Fightpbms.com, yes. Okay, good. I didn't so, want to speed by those without giving the yeah. audience a chance to hear them to hear them both. Oh. And and yeah, thank, and you. thank you for bringing that up. And also just, it's a good opportunity for us to take a moment and, and just acknowledge and thank NCPA as well, because they have done some really good work uh, in, in several of these areas. and you know, like all of us, they just want independent pharmacy to be able to, you know, not just exist, but thrive. So we appreciate that. Uh, Miss Lauren, what are your thoughts about 2024? This is going to be a crucial year, especially the first six months of seeing what the DIR hangover actually looks like in real dollars and cents. I know that there's a lot of people on Facebook groups that have been curious about how this changes what Ben Jolly has been doing for years in putting a DIR estimator in their pharmacy software systems. And it's just really interesting to see what we have been trying to brace for for the past few months and seeing those claims come through in real time and really seeing how much you were getting screwed by the DIR fees that uh, were being taken, you know, several months later. Uh, I know there's been uh, one of our putt friends, Leah, down in Texas, who fortunately had to sell her store uh, recently. And there's a lot of other owners who are trying to see if this is the year they're going to continue to be able to fight or if they are going to have to uh, look to sell as well. So I know that that's been a conversation in many, many groups, but I hope that everyone does keep fighting. I hope that this does spur on that idea of whether it is a more solid cash formula. I know that there's been some PUP members who have linked up with uh, the Mark Cuban's Cost Plus agreement. And so there's a lot of different initiatives that we have heard from some of our members. And we we know that pharmacists want to take care of 
patients first and foremost. And so that's really what we want to make sure continues to happen, even though in spite of all of these crazy contracts and hoops that we get to jump through every day. But I, I think that there is some positive in what's going on. So we just have to remember that uh, this is not new in the pharmacy realm. We have constantly been able to uh, figure out a way to pivot and still get our voices heard. So I think that's really going to be what makes or breaks some stores in the next few months. Perfect. Perfect, 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 Lauren. Just landed a perfect landing there. Thank you. All right. And so to everyone who is listening, we would love your thoughts on 2024. You know, what, what are you concerned about? What are you looking forward to? What should pharmacies and patients be aware of in the next few months and even over the next 12 months? Please contact us at info at truthrx.org. We are always happy to hear from our listeners and we look forward to your comments. To our panel today, uh, Steve, Greg, Lauren, thank you so much for being with us. We cannot wait to have you back. Steve, I was just thinking in particular for you, you were on the very first podcast, which I think was in January, right? So. 2020 or something like that. So yeah. it's been way too long. We're glad that you were able to join us today. Thank you. Well, I appreciate you and all the work that you you do. Um, you've got an incredible leadership team with to work with. I know you're the executive director, but Lauren, you know, you've been involved for long time now. Really appreciate the, the dedication. I don't know Deb yet. Um, I've talked to her, you know, in person, haven't met her in person a whole lot, but I thought her letter uh, about the ESI thing was incredible last November. So, so really appreciate all that the leadership team and, and, and Punt does. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. For all of you who are listening, thank you for joining us. We'll see you next month on the podcast.